Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. EU Confidential will get started right after a message from our series sponsor. Today's episode is presented by Shell. Shell welcomes the European Green Deal and supports the EU's target to achieve climate neutrality by 2050. This will require unprecedented cooperation and a framework to drive demand for and accelerate investment in new low-carbon solutions. To limit the spread of the virus globally, we agreed to reinforce our external borders by applying a coordinated temporary restriction of non-essential travel to the EU for a period of 30 days. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. Hope you're all holding up okay. These are extraordinary times and we'll be here at least twice a week as long as this crisis lasts to keep you supplied with information, debate, companionship and maybe even a little entertainment. You just heard European Council President Charles Michel speaking earlier this week after another video conference with EU leaders which agreed more sweeping measures to stem the tide of the coronavirus. It is, of course, the issue that's eclipsing everything else right now, and we'll discuss it in depth in just a second. We planned a while back to devote some of this episode to a deep dive into the EU's big new climate law, and as issues like that remain important and aren't going away forever, we'll still do that in the second part of the podcast. But first, of course, to the coronavirus. Let's get a view of the picture across Europe and how Europe's leaders are handling it with our podcast panel spread across the continent. It's a big hi to our podcast uh, panel, Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Good morning. And uh, Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Bonjour. And hunkering down in deepest Norwich, Annabelle Dixon. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. Why have you retreated to Norwich? Well, it sounds like London's about to go into lockdown, although we're not quite sure what that means. But um, I do actually live in Norwich when I'm not working in London. Um, So I've retreated home um, away from the the epicentre of the virus. Sounds like a good move. Uh, So before we get into the politics of all this, um, I just thought it'd be good to get a sense from each of you of what the how things have changed maybe in the last week since we spoke, you know, just things just move so quickly at the moment. uh, And what what the rules are on what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. So Reem, what what has changed in the last few days and, and what limits are there on on normal life in Paris? Well, the big change, obviously, is that Monday night, French President Emmanuel Macron gave a speech to the nation in which he finally announced that we were all to do mandatory confinement. Now, 
Mind you, he didn't use the word confinement. That was uh, quite a tour de force on his behalf. Um, but he did say that uh, people would no longer be allowed to leave their homes uh, unless they needed to go to get some groceries or to the pharmacy, get medical attention. And obviously those who cannot work from home and must go to work can go to work. But then he confused everyone by saying, in addition to these three exceptions, you would also be allowed to go out for some limited physical activity, as he put it. And immediately after his speech, I started getting a flood of text messages from people saying, wait, what exactly did he mean by that? What does that mean? Are we really in confinement? Are we not in confinement? So we had to explain that No, this is really locked down. And you can see it because you have policemen now in the streets um, actually stopping people and asking them to show ID, but also uh, this um, uh, piece of paper that you're supposed to write and sign on your honor, explaining why you're out of your house. And if it's not for one of the four aforementioned reasons, then you're fined 135 euros. Okay, uh, Matt, what's the situation in Berlin? Well, I think it's not quite as stringent here yet. That could change. In Berlin itself, you'll still see a lot of children out on playgrounds, although that's not allowed in the rest of the country, from what I understand. The park here uh, near where I live was, was pretty full. And the cafes, which are still open here, and restaurants are open and seem to be doing uh, pretty pretty good business, at least during the day. They're only open until 6 p.m. So it feels like the you know next phase is probably still to come here of of much more tighter controls on on people's movements as those um, numbers of infected go up but we're not there yet and annabelle the uk is probably the one which is has not taken the the kind of measures that we've seen all across the continent i mean here in brussels we're in a kind of maybe somewhere between paris and berlin appropriately where you know we are allowed to go out supermarkets are open but pretty much everything else is closed it's really just supermarkets and pharmacies and um it's a kind of lockdown in, in all but name but but annabelle in in the uk things are still relatively normal right this government's giving advice but things aren't shut down yeah, that's right. It's very much advisory. I mean, the most vulnerable people, so the, the elderly, the pregnant, like me, have been advised um, to avoid unnecessary social contact. I mean, the biggest thing came last night when um, the Prime Minister announced that schools are closing until further notice. So that's really the biggest step that's been taken so far. But I, I think there is a sense that there's more to come. I mean, there's huge lines in supermarkets and a lot of lot of panic buying, a lot of empty supermarket shelves, but the pubs are still full. So it's very much advisory at the moment, but no sign that everyone's taking the advice. Yeah, and in fact, maybe just let's follow on and stay with... I asked uh, each of us to kind of pick a clip from uh, the leaders in our respective countries or, or communities uh, and just give a sense of how they're they're leading at this time. So shall we listen to Boris Johnson first? Of course, people must take their own decisions. And I'm a, I'm a believer, as I say, in, in, in freedom. But let's be in absolutely no doubt that these are very, very important choices that we're now making in our daily lives. And the more closely and the more strictly, the more ruthlessly we can enforce upon ourselves, our families, the advice that we're getting, 
about avoiding unnecessary gatherings, about uh, staying at home when we have symptoms, all that advice, which is good advice, then the better we will be able to protect our NHS, the fewer deaths we will have, and the less suffering there will be in the UK population. And the faster we will get through this, and the, the better we will bounce back eventually. So it is a very, very clear choice for people. This is strong, strong advice. I think that clip's very telling and in, in it shows the mindset of Boris Johnson. I mean, he's been a liberal columnist for his whole career. You know, he's written about freedom. So really the idea of um, telling people to stay indoors and the sort of more draconian measures that you've seen elsewhere are, are an anathema to him. And I mean, at the moment, the, the sort of political consensus does seem to be holding. But there, I mean, there are rumblings about some of the response but more around the kind of economic measures and I think there is a problem in the not very clear message does give people an excuse to carry on going to the pub it's particularly unhelpful earlier in the week um Boris Johnson's dad who's a sort of erstwhile commentator was on uh one of the, the morning chat shows um and I think we can hear him here saying that he was going to still go to the pub which is obviously not very on message also, I'll go to a pub if I need to go to a pub. What do you think, what do you think your son's going to say today? He just told you not to. No, he said, you know, we should avoid going to pubs. But if I had to go to a pub, I'd go to a pub. If Why does anyone have to, to go, go to, to a pub? pub? Why would you have to go? Well, because the people you who run pubs need a little bit of people. And they don't want people to be not in the pub at all. That's my line. Well, there we go. I mean, this is, I have to say, one of, the, one of the aspects of this crisis, and we have to be careful again with tone. I was talking about this the other day. You know, there are, there are lighter moments to it. There are very dark moments to it. But I think there is a, a risk of kind of uh, senior citizen civil disobedience. I was talking to my mum in the north of Scotland the other day, and uh, woe betide anyone who tries to stop her walking her dog. That's all uh, I can say. Um, Matt, uh, leadership in Berlin. How's Angela Merkel handling this? Well, she gave an address to the nation last night, her first sort of non-scheduled, televised uh, address ever. Deswegen lassen Sie mich sagen, es ist ernst. Nehmen Sie es auch ernst. So it was a, a momentous moment, and I think for the most part it went down pretty well amongst Germans. She delivered what you would expect. There was a lot of, you know, we've got to get through this together type of of rhetoric and and encouragement. I think uh, some people were a bit disappointed that she didn't offer more specifics about what the government is actually going to do in terms of helping people whose livelihood is now uh, at stake. There was also a reference to World War II, which has, has created a bit of a, a stir because she said it was the, the greatest challenge uh, Germany had faced uh, since World War II. Seit der Deutschen Einheit. Nein, seit dem Zweiten Weltkrieg gab es keine Herausforderung an unser Land mehr, bei der es so sehr auf unser gemeinsames, solidarisches Handeln ankommt. If you look at the exact wording of it, it was a little more nuanced than that, but a lot of people, including myself, heard her say it was the biggest challenge since World War II, which in the German context can be uh, somewhat somewhat confusing. And to, to, to me, given everything that Germany did in World War II, and it wasn't really you know so much a challenge for the Germans as it was for the people on the other side, but I think that that shows um, just how disorganized the German response is, that even in a, a major address like this, which normally the speech would take weeks to write, they're doing it on the fly 
and something like that slips in, and it says to me that they are really just scrambling like the rest of us, as we saw in the UK, as Annabelle was, was, was just saying, you know, we have to deal with the situation, the political leaders have to deal with the situation as it is today. But I, I do think at some point, people are going to look back and, and maybe give a little more scrutiny to the decisions that they made in the weeks leading up to this, or the decisions that they didn't make in the, in the, in the weeks leading up to this. Yeah, I think there's a big chance of, a, of you know, public inquiries and, and that kind of thing somewhere down the line here. Um, you, you don't know how this is going to pan out, but it would be surprising if people didn't take a look back at this at, at some point. Um Let's hear uh, maybe from Ursula von der Leyen, uh, the president of the European Commission, who did admit this week that um, really this whole crisis was underestimated, that uh, the coronavirus was underestimated. But she has also then taken to uh, giving these kind of daily video messages which are posted on social media. In addition, we are accelerating research. Yesterday, I spoke to the managers of an innovative European research company, they work on a promising technology to develop a vaccine against the coronavirus. The European Union provides them up to 80 million euros. And I hope that with this support, we can have a vaccine on the market perhaps before autumn. Okay, now that's a bold uh, prediction, you know, vaccine on the market before autumn. And we should say our own healthcare team have been uh, fact checking this. And that is not the view of, you know, the EU's own drug regulators, for example, and uh, quite a lot of other people who know a lot about this business. And so in some ways, Ursula von der Leyen is, is giving hope, perhaps kind of getting ahead of the curve there. But clearly, again, if things end up taking much longer, she, she runs the risk of, of giving people false hope of basically saying, you know, this could all be over before the autumn. She's been listening to Trump too much, I think. Huh? You think so? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> leadership model right there. Um, Reem, what about uh, Emmanuel Macron? As you say, uh, his initial message the other day seemed to lead to some confusion. What's been his approach to, to leadership through this crisis? It's been interesting because he gave two addresses to the nation. The first one he gave uh, was on the 12th of March, and it was asking people uh, to sort of be responsible and stay home, but he wasn't declaring confinement yet. Clearly, that message was not really understood, which is why a week later he had to get on TV and say, okay, you got to stay home now. Like, this is not optional anymore. I'm being prescriptive. And even after that, two days later... His prime minister and now all of his ministers and his interior minister are having to get on TV and continue saying, guys, this is serious. Stay home. But it's very clear that he is in charge. He is leading. He meets multiple times a day uh, and obviously multiple times a week with his crisis management group, which includes a scientific uh, council, because for him, it's been very important to say that every single one of his decisions has been based on scientific recommendations, including a very controversial uh, decision he made of maintaining the first round of the local elections, even though it was becoming very clear that it was impossible to hold the second round of the election, which they ended up postponing. Right. And let's just hear, he's also kind of invoked, he's the one who's probably gone most for the, the war rhetoric, the we're at war. Nous sommes en guerre. En guerre sanitaire, certes. I know Annabelle has to, to go soon, so let's just do a quick a quick roundup and just get a sense of 
how you're feeling after a few days of this very uh, strange situation. You know, unprecedented is definitely the phrase, even though the, my mother is fed up hearing it. Uh, so sorry if she's listening. Um, Annabelle, just uh, jump in. How, how are you feeling? Also, you, you mentioned you're pregnant at the moment. And also, do you have any tips for how to how to survive lockdown? Um, well, I've I feel like I've been in isolation for quite a long time because as soon as the first cases um, in Parliament were announced, I decided to avoid avoid going to Westminster. And I, I have to say, it has it's been quite interesting this week. Um, I mean, when they suddenly announced that pregnant women were among the vulnerable, a lot of I mean, I don't think anyone really knows about the science because this is a new disease. But it was quite confusing when they suddenly announced that that we were in the vulnerable group. It wasn't clear whether we should be staying in the house and not leaving at all or just trying not to go to parties or go to the pub. Um, and in terms of what I'm doing to keep myself entertained, one of my favourite words of the coronavirus lexicon that I read this morning was a WhatsApp aperitif, um, which is having a drink over a WhatsApp call. So I'm trying to get lots of uh, WhatsApp calls in my diary so that I don't <laughs> feel quite so lonely. <laughs> okay, well, maybe we could do one of those, uh, you know, virtually as a as a podcast group, and and also with oh, our listeners. We do it every week, anyway. We we were ahead of the curve. We've been <laughs> yeah. doing this. We've been doing this for months. Yeah, so. true, true. That we are the new reality, which uh, is quite a frightening thought. Uh, <laughs> Matt, I think you wanted to jump in earlier. Was there something you wanted to say about Macron? Or oh, no, well, I just wanted to say now that I know that uh, Annabelle's holed up in Norwich, I'm going to have to dust off my Alan Partridge uh, DVD collection as uh, right. to to. Uh, you know, while away the hours. But I, I did want to say just in generally that this this question of, of, of leadership, I think, is going to remain kind of front and center politically, because it, it is interesting that we're hearing all of this dramatic rhetoric about war and uh, what, what, what have you now, whereas a couple of weeks ago, we were hearing uh, nothing of the sort. And you're hearing similar tones in Germany now that Germany has over 10,000 cases. They're still not at the stage where China was back in January when they had 800 cases. So, you know, in terms I of mean, measures, you mean confinement? In, in terms of, kind of confinement stuff. and, and yeah. these kind of draconian quarantines uh, that, that China imposed. And I think a lot of people are going to have to answer for why they didn't take this more seriously. Yep, uh, absolutely. Matt showing his age there, by the way, by mentioning DVDs uh, for our younger listeners. That's the thing <laughs> before Netflix. Um uh, anyway, Reem, what about what about you? How are you kind of surviving Paris lockdown, and do do you have any tips? Okay, I don't want to sound like I'm dismissing everyone's um, difficulties in adjusting, but just fair warning: you are talking to a Lebanese person who was born in the civil war in Lebanon. And, you know, grew up in the 90s in Lebanon uh, with multiple wars with Israel. And so for us, you know, this is just bringing me back some some childhood memories, if I may say so myself. And, and um, I have to say, I know it's an adjustment for people who grew up in Europe and have never had to deal with something like this. So I don't mean to sort of belittle what people are going through right now. But just to keep things in perspective, you know, 
Confinement in Europe or lockdown in Europe is pretty luxurious for most of us. You know, we have reliable power supply, water supply, internet, uh, even though the internet has been a bit iffy in France lately. Um, the supermarkets um, are pretty well stocked up, even though they're running out of stock a bit, but it's not like they're, you know, they're going to run out of uh, a way to kind of get restocked. Uh, you know, in Lebanon, things would get bombed, the airport would not be uh, functional anymore, and then we would really be sort of in need of a lot of things. Reem's absolutely right, you know, compared to uh, situations that people in other places in the world have find themselves in, it's not the same. Although I will say that my own experience, for example, of being in the middle of the Iraq war in 2003 is one of the things I found hardest about that was being isolated and not able to go out, basically being locked down in a hotel most of the time as things got worse. I mean, there was obviously a lot of danger and, uh, you know, physical risk there, but that's actually one of the things I found uh, hardest, just never being able to kind of switch off or, or even be away from uh, from people and just be on your own for a bit. So I think we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll invite our listeners to chime in with their tips for how they're surviving lockdown. And um, talk to you all in a few days, yeah? Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, Cheers. bye. Bye. And now let's switch gears to a topic that many thought would be the issue at the top of the EU's agenda right now, and that's Europe's climate law. Coming up, we'll explain the five bruising battles that are brewing as Brussels aims to get the continent carbon neutral by 2050. It's part of a brand new series focusing on energy, which will feature in occasional episodes throughout the year. We'll get to that just as soon as we hear a message from our series sponsor. A message from Shell. Shell welcomes the European Green Deal and supports the EU's target to achieve climate neutrality by 2050. Success in reaching climate neutrality will rest on progress made on several key enabling policies. For example, reforming the EU emissions trading system to align it with the climate neutrality goal encouraging investment in renewable power and lower carbon gases, such as hydrogen, and scaling up carbon removal technologies, both nature-based solutions and carbon capture, and storage to balance unavoidable emissions. A sector-led approach to the implementation of the Green Deal is vital, because there is a need for mass deployment of clean technologies. These technologies are generally sector-specific, and governments working with business to improve coordination throughout sectoral value chains is essential. I'll be back at the end of the podcast with details on how you can get in touch with us and we're especially keen to hear from you in these dramatic days. But now I'll let our climate reporters Kalina Oroshakov and Aitor Hernandez take it from here. Earlier this month, in what almost seems like a different world from today's perspective, the European Commission unveiled the European Climate Law. The legislation gives legal backing to Brussels' European Green Deal – which is a plan to radically slash greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050. Today it's no longer the question if there will be a European Green Deal or whether the European Union will become climate neutral. But the question is how. How are we proceeding? And how far-reaching will the transition be? Although the coronavirus pandemic has, understandably, diverted attention away from the European Green Deal, the EU remains committed to the climate neutrality goal. Behind the scenes, on a technical level, national diplomats have started their negotiations on the climate law. Here's what a spokesperson for the European Commission had to say earlier this week. The long-term work on the uh, Green Deal continues in parallel, and this does continue to be the... Uh 
one of the priorities as well. We have uh, preparations ongoing and this work is, uh, is continuing underway. And negotiations will likely be long and contentious. Right, but here's the bottom line. The Commission and others who support the 2050 targets say that it's vital because it gives certainty to the industries that have to adapt over the coming decades. And it also sends an important message to the world that the EU is serious about climate change and believes that it can be good for the economy, too. I caught up with Kadri Simpson, the Estonian Commissioner for Energy, at COP25 in Madrid at the end of last year. It gives some kind of positive momentum and it assures the wider range of countries that um, here is one continent that considers that it is possible to take care of the environment and this is part of your own growth strategy. Momentum is one thing, but the details of how to actually do it will pit Brussels, national politicians, industry leaders and environmental campaigners against one another. I think we have the ingredients in Europe, but what we need to focus at now is how will we be doing this? How do we get there? This is Marcus Bayer, and he's the Director General of Business Europe, a very powerful association that represents businesses throughout the continent. How, how can we deploy the technology? Where does the affordable green energy, green electricity come from? How do we make sure that we stay competitive? How do we make sure that we also convince other parts of the world? So, Kalina, it sounds like when work normally resumes on this legislation, we'll have a series of interlinked boxing matches in store with different fighters jumping into different rings. Why don't we introduce our listeners to our combative champs? With relish. In one corner, we have the EU policymakers trying to turn the Green Deal into reality. In another, the national politicians, wary of what the commitments mean for their countries. Warming up ringside industry leaders who don't want to lose out from the green transition. And environmental campaigners who want to push the envelope. Each boxer has a part to play in each round of the climate match. Let's dig into the fight. Round 1. The EU wants to be climate neutral by 2050. But it's important to remember that this target is an EU-wide one. Some countries say it's fine to have that overall target, but they're not signing up to be climate neutral themselves by that date. Poland has already made clear that it won't adopt the 2050 timeline for now and is going to move at its own pace. This is because coal still fuels some 80% of the country's power needs and dropping it will take time and a lot of money. But not everyone agrees with this approach. Here's Dan Jorgensen, Minister of Climate, Energy and Utilities of Denmark, speaking to Politico. The target of climate neutrality in 2050 needs to be a target for not only the EU as a whole but also for all individual countries. Because if we don't get that, then we'll have a long and not very fruitful discussion about burden sharing. And also imagine a situation where you have to say to one country, you need to be carbon negative in order for other countries to keep polluting. Some countries like Austria, Denmark, Finland and Sweden have pledged to get carbon neutrality faster than mid-century. The climate law bill would also hand Brussels some new tools to make sure that emission cuts are on track for the 2050 target. It proposes giving the Commission new powers to ramp through tougher emission cuts every five years after 2030, and making it impossible, or at least pretty hard, for countries and the Parliament to say no to any higher goals. But many national politicians won't like the idea, and the European People's Party, the largest group in Parliament, says that it's a non-starter. Here's Danish Minister Jorgensen again. 
On one hand, we want the Commission to to have muscles and be strong in in securing that we have implementation uh, of the goals uh, that we that we have decided on. On the other hand, also we need to make sure that all decisions are legitimate from a democratic point of view. Uh, and and finally, thirdly, we need flexibility uh, because when you talk about making the right frameworks towards climate neutrality, uh, you need to acknowledge that technology uh, is moving so fast that something that looked very good a few years ago, and something that looked impossible a few years ago, it might all have uh, reversed. The Commission also plans to review progress every five years starting from 2023. It will look at both the national and EU levels, aiming to make sure that they're on track to meet the overall goal, even if countries are going at different speeds. But Brussels has postponed a debate on targets for emission cuts in specific sectors, ranging from transport to agriculture and energy, and countries. Those fights are probably coming sooner or later. Round two. So, we have the 2050 target, but there's also now a battle shaping up over new 2030 targets. As it stands, the EU is aiming for a 40% emissions cut by 2030, but Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has pledged to increase the target to 50%, if not 55%. Going that far has major political implications. We want to be carbon neutral in 2050. This is Svenja Schulze, the German Environment Minister who will chair environmental council meetings as of July, when Germany holds the rotating presidency of the council. And therefore we must do more than we just uh, have uh, agreed with each other. Minus 40% is not enough. We need 50-55 to reach the target. And that's the discussion starting now, how we get to this target and not if we need the discussion about how. The European Parliament backed the 55% goal in its Green Deal resolution earlier this year. But the European People's Party is reluctant to go that far. They are worried that businesses could be harmed. Meanwhile, EU countries are split. A group of Western and Northern members, such as Finland and the Netherlands, support a 55% cut. But coal-reliant countries are resisting over concerns it would hit jobs and competitiveness. But Brussels is treading carefully, because it knows that pushing a higher 2030 goal past EU members without their full backing is a major political risk. A group of largely Northern and Western countries like France, Denmark and the Netherlands, and the European Parliament, want the Commission to come out with a plan by early summer. And yet, even before the coronavirus crisis erupted, EU Green Deal chief Franz Timmermans signaled that it might take until September. The impact of the new 2030 target has started and is ongoing. And as you know, we want to find out what the best landing zone is if we want to get to from 50% towards 55% emissions cuts in 2030. To do that will require huge efforts by all, and that is why we don't want to make thoroughness and detail the victim of political expediency. But to some activists, these targets still aren't enough. In fact, on the day the European Commission unveiled its new law, Swedish youth climate activist Greta Thunberg kind of rained on their parade. When your house is on fire, you don't wait a few more years to start putting it out. And yet, this is what the Commission are proposing today. When the EU presents this climate law and net zero by 2050, you indirectly admit surrender that you are giving up, giving up on the Paris Agreement. And she's not alone in her criticism of the law. 
Round three. Going green will require enormous investment. And so there's a huge fight over who foots the bill and who will benefit. Here's Markus Bayer again from Business Europe. We have a huge investment gap. It is huge already for the target we have on 2030 currently. So whatever happens now in this impact assessment, it's, it's pretty clear that the 2030 targets will become more ambitious. So meaning the investment gap will grow uh, and it will grow exponentially. So first we will need to see where does the investment come from. But if we want this to work, all sectors will need to Uh, to contribute. So, so this means, uh, of course, industry, energy production. Uh, we did not yet have a very far-reaching look at, at buildings and existing buildings, and, and we know that a lot is coming from there. Agriculture, uh, which, which has not been yet assessed in details, and, and obviously also transport. Wealthy nations such as the Netherlands, Sweden and Denmark are pushing hard for higher climate goals. But, at the same time, they're balking at boosting their contribution under the EU's next seven-year budget, which infuriated poorer nations and contributed to the failure of February's EU budget summit. It's unclear now when the budget will be decided. That's another effect of the coronavirus. And without a budget, it will be hard to make progress on the money front. And some countries like Poland, Germany, Romania and the Czech Republic will be relying on crucial programs in the budget like the 7.5 billion Just Transition Fund the Commission initiative that would help carbon-heavy regions go green. But then you have countries like Spain and others complaining that the fund rewards coal-reliant nations, such as Poland and Germany, over them that went green earlier. And then there are some countries that say that only governments that sign up to the 2050 climate neutrality goal should be eligible for transition fund cash. And yet there's one thing that European politicians agree on. Affected regions need to be supported to go green and drop polluting fuels. Here's French member of the European Parliament and Environment Committee Chair Pascal Canfin from the Renew Europe group. It's the goal of the EU and all the countries of the EU with the differentiation that we can accept. And then that's because it's the goal that you have to transition. And because you have to transition, then you have money and European solidarity. Round four. Going climate neutral by 2050 won't be possible without absorbing emissions that simply can't get cut. So, the climate law bill says that by 2050, the remaining emissions should be offset by removing carbon from the atmosphere. This could be done through natural and technological solutions. Here's EU Commissioner Kadri Simpson again. The Green Deal is not only about energy policy, it is also about uh, new industry policy. It is uh, as much about uh, housing transport, and, uh, and all the solutions uh, that will help us to capture the emissions. EU officials are increasingly hyping forests as a way to suck up excess emissions. This could also help clean up sectors like construction by promoting wood as a building material and replace coal and other fossil fuels. But environmental campaigners worry this could threaten forest and biodiversity, undercutting the potential of trees to absorb emissions by burning them instead. Coming from Estonia, where we have lots of forests, well, reforestation is not something new for us. Yeah. But in European level, it might be a very interesting solution. Tech solutions such as carbon capture and storage or more esoteric options like direct air capture, which could absorb carbon from the atmosphere, also raise concerns. Critics say they're costly, untested, and could undermine efforts to squeeze fossil fuels from the energy mix. Round five. 
The coronavirus crisis may most affect the diplomatic dimension of the climate law. The EU wanted to pressure global economic rivals by proving that slashing emissions to net zero makes economic sense. But with a pandemic-related financial crisis on the horizon, no one knows which concerns will dominate global talks in the coming months. And with countries focused on national responses to the health crisis and international travel largely suspended, the EU's fall summit with China and the COP26 climate talks in Glasgow, which is scheduled for November, are also potentially in jeopardy. Kalina Orashakov ending that special report on the EU's climate law. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. We'll be back to our regular format next week. But before that, on Monday, we'll have the second of our special extra coronavirus episodes. And our special guest will be the EU's Home Affairs Commissioner, Ilva Johansson. As I mentioned before, we're particularly keen to hear from you right now. Please drop us a line at podcast at politico.eu. Or you can find Annabelle, Reem, Matt and me all on social media, along with our producer, Christina Gonzalez. We're open to ideas on what to talk about, who to talk to and even how to talk about it. Because as I mentioned on Monday, I think tone's a tricky thing at times like this. Please also subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez and thanks to you for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.